At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we believe theological education should be confessional. Because of our desire to identify with what Christ has done in His church throughout the centuries, we fully adhere to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This standard keeps us accountable and preserves us from novelty. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast today, and we're thankful that you've joined us for this conversation that Jimmy and I are going to be having today. We're going to be uh, talking about the Baptist theologian, John Gill. So, uh, Brother Jimmy, will you get us started with this conversation by giving us a biography of John Gill? Yes. So, John Gill was born in 1697 in Kettering, Northamptonshire, which would be familiar to those who listened to the episode on Andrew Fuller, because that's from the same general vicinity of where Andrew Fuller was from. He was born to... Christian parents, both both of them were Christians, both of them were Baptist, and their names were Edward and Elizabeth. John regularly went to church, and in 1709, he experienced conversion after hearing his pastor, William Wallace, preach on Genesis 3.19. However, John feared... Um, that they would rush him into ministry, so he did not actually make a public profession of faith until at the age of 19 in 1716 that he he professed faith in Christ publicly and then was actually baptized by Thomas Wallace, who had taken over for his father. John Gill uh, had received formal education until the age of 11, where the person who was running that was going to require that students attend the Ag- Anglican parish if they were to going to continue an education to which his parents were not okay with. So he was pulled out of formal education, but he was known to regularly visit the public bookstore to the point where people would say something is certain by comparing it or comparing the certainty of whatever it was that they were talking about to the certainty that they had that John Gill was at the bookstore. So he was always at the bookstore. He was always studying, reading. He knew Greek. He would eventually teach himself Latin, or he knew Latin. He would eventually teach himself Hebrew and and was very well read in the languages. But in 1717, so John Gill would prove himself right, he, he eventually was sent to assist a pastor by the name of John Davis, and he assisted him in pastoral work as well as preaching. And that while there, he met a woman by the name of Elizabeth. In 1718, John Gill would marry Elizabeth, and they would move to Kettering, where John would continue ministry. A year later, in 1719, John Gill began to fill the pulpit at Goatyard Chapel, Horsley Down, Southwark, which was the church of 
Benjamin Keach. And it had been the pulpit had previously or immediately been filled by Benjamin Keach's son-in-law who suddenly died. So they were having Gill come in and, and fill in. In 1720, he was called as pastor to that church. But there was a great deal of opposition. There was dissenting deacons that actually kind of held the church building hostage because they, they didn't think John Gill was ready to be there. But eventually, he, he all things did end up getting resolved. Those dissenting members eventually would leave. And, and some other members in 1723, including the family of Benjamin Keach or the surviving relatives of Benjamin Keach, would leave the church and go elsewhere. But John Gill began pastoring at that church, and he would remain there the rest of his life. In 1724, he published the glory of God's grace displayed in its abounding over the abounding's of sin. He he regularly wrote and regularly preached. One of his biggest publications in 1728 is the exposition of the Song of Solomon, which would kind of move him into the public spotlight, and he he became known as a skilled writer. Throughout his life, he would respond to various controversies, especially interacting with those who who had left the orthodox position of the doctrine of the Trinity. That was one of his main areas of writing as well as engagement. He also, of course, dealt with the doctrines of grace, which he would eventually become most known for, or, or at least he, he would become known for it, and some would ascribe to him the position of high or hyper-Calvinism. But he, all the while, while writing, while writing commentaries on, or verse-by-verse verse commentary on every book of the Bible, he, he would be awarded a, a doctorate from Aberdeen University. And while doing all these things, it's important that we remember that he was pastoring the whole time. He and his wife had some children, but or several children, but only two of them would would survive childhood and and survive both their father and their mother. His wife would become an invalid and die prior to John Gill in 1764. But he he did care deeply for his wife and would regularly visit her and and speak with her and encourage her throughout her various ailments. He would also write works defending believers' baptism, which, which we would think is important. And then he eventually published his magnum opus, The Body of Doctrinal and Practical Divinity, in 1769. Um, toward the end of his life, John Gill's church wanted to get him a pastoral assistant. To, to help him with the preaching labors because in his age he was not able to preach as powerfully as he had at one point in time. But he, he didn't want an assistant preacher and actually was considering leaving his congreg congregation and resigning to, to studies when his church actually wrote a letter 
to him. And I'm going to read a portion of that letter. It says, another grievous circumstance is, which if the church is willing, you seem inclined to resign your office as pastor. This expression is extremely alarming to us and is what can by no means find a place in our thoughts, it being our fixed desire and continual prayer, which you may live and die in that endeared relation. We say with united voice, how can a father give up his children or affectionate children their father? Dear sir, we beseech you not to cast us off, but bear us upon your heart and spiritual affections all your days and let us be remembered to God through your prayers, who knows and who knows but the Lord may visit us again and make us break forth on the right hand and on the left. So in that letter, what you, you see is a great deal of admiration and desire for John Gill as their pastor, and, and he would remain there all the way until his death in 17. 17- 71, which would mean that he pastored at the same church for 52 years, um, faithfully exposing the word. He wasn't known as one who, who did a great deal of visitation, but when needs arose, he would go and visit and, and, and administer words of encouragement and, and be a pastoral presence. But he was beloved by his congregation, but eventually he passed away, and that that church would eventually come to be pastored by probably the most famous Baptist in history, and that is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So this is that church is a church that has a history of some of the the great Baptist of church history. So that's that's a sketch of John Gill's life. He he basically lived his entire life as a minister of the gospel over over fifty years of it, anyways. Thank you for that uh, biography on John Gill, brother. Uh, can you give us some lessons that we can learn from the life of John Gill? Yeah. John Gill dropped out of formal education at the age of 11, but came to be known as a a young man, as well as throughout his life, an adult man who was a disciplined studier of the Word of God and, and of truth in general. So one lesson that we can learn is that even if one is not able to to receive an extensive formal training in, in theological studies, even in the things like the languages, if, if one sets themselves to the work and works hard and is disciplined, they can gain a great facility to the, to the point that John Gill was one of the most well-known um, scholars in, in the Old Testament and the Old Testament languages. So one lesson, and this is the same lesson that we can learn from Gill, is that to be a skilled workman in the office of ministry requires hard work and discipline, and ministers should set themselves to that. And then secondly, off of that same point, is that even if you are a lay person who wants to grow in your knowledge and understanding of doctrine, that 
you are able to do it much in the same way that Gil did. Probably not to the same facility or level that Gil did, but you can learn about these truths and, and become well-versed in the doctrines of our faith and in the scriptures that, that found those doctrines or that are the source of those doctrines. Uh, another point that we can learn from Gill is that even though he was involved in a number of controversies, most whom he disagreed with saw him as a man of integrity. They, he was able to maintain many friendships with people who he had strong disagreements with. Um, one person, well-known person, that he had a great deal of disagreement with was the famous evangelist John Wesley, and and John Wesley even would acknowledge that he was a a man worthy of respect. So, when we disagree with others, we from John Gill we can learn that we should strive to be kind in our disagreement and and to not disagree in anger and try to be irenic in in presenting our our positions on things. A third thing that we can learn from John Gill is that it is important or that is a of great value at the very least that a pastor be a pastor theologian. A, a pastor should be one who is well-versed in the doctrines of the faith. They should be one who is able to defend those doctrines from Scripture, which is our final authority, and they should discipline themselves to the degree that they are able to do that spontaneously, if need be. And then lastly, I think one of the most obvious things that we can learn from John Gill is the value of serving at the same church for a long period of time. He he served at that church for more than 50 years. Not many pastors ever can say that. And so we can learn that there's great value in staying at the same place for a long period of time and faithfully expositing the Word of God to people and ministering to the same congregation. And that, that will reap all kinds of good fruit. So those would be some of the lessons that, that we could learn from John Gill. Well, you've already hinted at where we're going at the next part of our conversation. Uh, you mentioned John Wesley and uh, some other accusations against John Gill. Uh, can you lead us into this next part of the conversation about some of the controversies that John Gill went through during his life. Yes. Uh, and one thing to make known or before we get into it, John Gill did much more than just talk about Calvinism and the doctrines of grace, but because of his strong personality as well as many of his writings on the doctrines of grace, and, and particularly some of the positions that he would take on the free offer of the gospel and things of that nature, John Gill has kind of become the hyper-Calvinist boogeyman, and, and people abstain from reading him altogether based upon that 
in in my opinion, somewhat of a caricature of of John Gill, since he did talk about much more than just the doctrines of grace. But even that controversy, particularly high Calvinism, hyper Calvinism, and where where John Gill stood, it, it we have to go back and consider what John Gill's view of justification was, and and it would differ slightly from the orthodox position that you find in the Reformed Confessions. In 1729, John Gill actually persuaded his congregation to replace the confession that Benjamin Keach had written, which was essentially identical to the London Baptist Confession other than some additions and as well as editing to it. But in the Second London Confession, we read in chapter 11, paragraph 4, that God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. So the Orthodox position believed that justification was decreed in eternally, but not personally enjoyed by an individual until the Holy Spirit applied it to them, bringing about faith as an instrument by which the the person rests in Christ and is upon that that they are justified. John Gill, in his confession, writes this. We believe that the justification of God's elect is only by the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, without the consideration of any works of righteousness done by them, and that the full and free pardon of their sins and transgressions, past, present, and to come, is only by the blood of Christ, according to the riches of his grace. So in doing that, he kind of, there's nothing about faith at all. So he left open the door for what would eventually be called eternal justification. So John Gill believed that justification itself, even of the individual, precedes their belief in the gospel, and that justification upon believing is not to be properly called justification. And and this would I mean, you can kind of begin to think of what implications of this might be. It could potentially lead to a sort of antinomianism. If someone is justified eternally, then they need to not worry about even believing in the gospel, but especially not in obeying the law of God as a rule of life. Now, John Gill never took it that far, but some who would come after him eventually would take it that far. John Gill still believed that the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments was the rule of life for a believer and that the elect should believe and repent of their sins and, and do those things. But the time of justification, in John Gill's opinion, is in eternity, um, whereas the Orthodox Reformed believe that one personally experience justification in which God declares them right upon their belief in the gospel. And so a slight distinction there, but that leads us to this idea of Calvinism. Uh, and 
John Gill wrote a work called The Cause of God and Truth. It's a large work, and in it, he defends the five points of Calvinism. He does it in various ways by going through controversial text. He also actually has an extended portion in which he he provides quotations from early church fathers showing that the doctrines of grace were even present in in the early church fathers. It's a very interesting work. But the question of whether or not John Gill was a hyper-Calvinist or a high-Calvinist really kind of depends on what became known as the controversy of the modern question. The modern question is actually what Andrew Fuller sought to answer in his work, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And, and Andrew Fuller counters John Gill in this debate, which is why most would say that John Gill was, in fact, a hyper-Calvinist. So the modern question was, is it man's duty to believe the gospel? And a secondary implication of that is another question is, ought Christians freely offer the gospel to all unconverted? Andrew Fuller would say yes to both those questions. It is man's duty everywhere to believe the gospel upon hearing it. And ought Christians freely offer the gospel to all? Yes, which is where I believe that I can say safely that both Oss and I would answer affirmative to both those questions too. However, John Gill at first likely would have affirmed those positions, but over time, and and I would say connected to his understanding of eternal justification, began to to be less open to the idea of freely offering the gospel to all, um, as well as believing that was man's duty to believe the gospel. He he seems to have moved in the direction of hyper Calvinism, but that didn't mean that. John Gill or other high Calvinist of his day of his day were not concerned about the lost being converted. They they just seemed to be less interested in in pressing the gospel and pressing the belief of the gospel upon those who are at the present time not believers. So was he a hyper Calvinist? Tom Nettle says no. Um but Michael Haken, another Baptist historian, seems to think that, yes, he was indeed a hyper-Calvinist, even though he did not go nearly as far as some of his contemporaries or those who followed him. So that, that became an issue, and, and that's what's kind of cast a negative light on John Gill to the point where many have not read him at all because of, because of this, this issue. However, I, I would say that John Gill, some of his most valuable controversial writings or engagement with controversies come in the issue of Trinitarian theology as well as the Incarnation. In Gill's day, subscription to creeds and confessions had come under subs- or suspicion. One reason for this is because many among general Baptists and Presbyterian Presbyterians had begun adopting heretical views of the Trinity in the person of Christ. During this time, Unitarianism was on the rise. Arianism was also on the rise, and so was 
modalism. So Unitarianism is just an outright rejection of the Trinity. It would say that there is only one person within the Godhead. Arianism would say that Christ is not the second person of the Trinity, but is the first and best created being, is himself a creature. And then modalism denies the distinction between the persons and says what we seem to see as persons within scriptures are actually just different modes of the same person through redemptive history being expressed. They are different personalities, not not distinct persons. And Gill responded to each one of these. And in the work A Treatise on the or Treatise on the Doctrine of the Trinity, he defended the Trinity in general. In a dissertation concerning the eternal sonship of Christ, he defended the distinction between the first and second person of the Trinity by demonstrating that this was the historical position, that that the orthodox position distinguished between the persons. And then in his body of divinity, he gives a robust scriptural treatment of it. Dr. Haken, when I took a class on Andrew Fuller, when he was talking about John Gill, actually stated in class that John Gill was one of the main reasons that the English particular Baptists remained orthodox on the doctrine of the Trinity, whereas general Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists began to divert into these various false beliefs, these, these heresies. Um, and then lastly, John Gill also contributed to the baptism debate, which, which we as Baptists think is an important issue, probably definitely not the most important controversy that John Gill dealt with, but he did write at length defending believers' baptism as well as congregational church ecclesiology. Now, since this is the Covenant podcast, it's worth mentioning that that Gill did have a covenantal system, which which he held to. He, he clearly affirms the covenant of redemption between um, God the Father, God the Son, and in God the Holy Spirit. And he wrote at length about the Holy Spirit's role in the covenant of redemption. However, his understanding of covenants seems to to be a lot more like the Westminster's confession of faith or understanding of covenant theology, one covenant of grace, multiple administrations. However, he still clearly believed that believers alone should be baptized and and also defended closed communion. So there's there's a summary of John Gill's beliefs about or or engagements with the various controversies of his day. Well, thank you for uh, that conversation on the controversies that John Gill went through. Uh, Brother Jimmy, what resources would you recommend to our listeners that want to study about John Gill or maybe even his uh, primary sources? So about John Gill, if you want to read about him, I'd recommend By His Grace and For His Glory by Tom Nettles. Tom Nettles gives a little bit of a biography as well as kind of explains where John Gill fits in the doctrines of grace. And then another work that's entirely about John Gill that includes a about a 40-page biography of him, but then actually talks about where he fits within the Reformed tradition, talks about him as a 
biblical interpreter and also talks at length about his Calvinism as well as whether or not he fits within high Calvinism is a work edited by Michael Haken called The Life and Thought of John Gill. And then another book that discusses as well as evaluates John Gill's doctrine is titled Theologians of the Baptist Tradition by edited by Timothy George and David Dockery. So those would be works about him. As for works by him that are, I think, worth engaging and worth reading, at least maybe not at length, but at least engaging in particular parts would be his commentaries on the Old and New Testaments. John Gill was actually the first person to ever publish a commentary on every verse in the Bible. So they are worth looking into. They He has good insight on every passage, so he's worth consulting. Another work, or his magnum opus, A Complete Body of Doctrinal and Practical Divinity, also would be worth reading. I especially enjoy his engagements with the doctrine of God and the Trinity. So those are fascinating sections that, that he is orthodox on and and gives robust argumentation and explanation for. Another work by his is The Cause of God and Truth. That's where he defends the doctrines of grace. And also you get some citations of the Church Fathers, which in in their standpoint on various doctrines that relate to the doctrines of grace, and I think that is a invaluable contribution that he gives. In fact, Michael Haken, who is um, not only a scholar of Baptist history, but also a patristic scholar, actually went back and reviews, reviewed these citations that, that, uh, that John Gill gives of the Church Fathers to see if he's just cherry-picking them and to bring them on his side. But he says, by and large, they are accurate um, portrayals of, of what the Church Fathers believe. And in doing so, John Gill shows that many of the Church Fathers maybe not fully, but at least not in a contradictory way, affirmed the doctrines of grace as they would be more fleshed out in the Reformed confessions and traditions. So those would be the works by him that I would recommend. Uh, Do you have any final encouragements that you can give us on John Gill as we conclude today? I know we didn't have this prepare, and I know you kind of gave us some lessons, but maybe some things that you just truly admire about him before we finish. Yeah, I just encourage people to to read the man for himself before before casting such a negative light on him. Uh, it's fine to disagree with him on eternal justification as well as the free offer of the gospel. I I disagree with him on both both fronts, but I I think he still has value especially within the Baptist and even the more broader Reformed tradition of theology. So read him for yourself before before allowing certain people to cast such a negative light on him to where you won't even hear what he has to say. As well as just, I think one of the main encouragements that I have when reading John Gill is that I remember that the man was first and foremost a Christian, and, and then secondarily, he was a Christian pastor. So his main work, and he saw it as his main work, was as pastor. And 
his works were for the benefit of his own local congregation and the the church more broadly speaking so it it's easy for us sometimes when when reading these major figures of church history to to forget that most of them by and large were were pastor theologians the same thing would apply even to those like john calvin but particularly within the baptist tradition the early baptists they were primarily pastor theologians who who exuded a robust confessional doctrine and and were willing to defend it for additional content check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com also keep up with our social media accounts on facebook instagram and twitter next head on over to itunes and leave us a review lastly Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.